Hello, and welcome to Supply Chain Next. I'm your host, Richard Donaldson. Join me as we explore the ongoing evolution of supply chain, from the challenges practitioners face every day to the ongoing digital transformation of the entire value network. And welcome to the next episode of Supply Chain Next. I am excited to be here with John Bolto of Additive Now, who is out of Perth, Australia. Uh, hey, John, how you doing? Good morning. Good morning. How are you, Richard? I am good. I'm good. I, we are leveraging the uh, the the internet as designed to bring, make the world a very small place. So while I'm in Arizona, you're in Perth, and we can have a, an incredible podcast, uh, which is amazing. I, sometimes I still just stop for a second and go, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, but I want to get right into it. I, you know, this is about you, uh, 3D printing, uh, and how 3D printing is going to be shaping uh, some of the upcoming supply chain trends, if not reshaping, remaking supply chains as we know it. And based on our earlier conversations, I know you've, you've got an enormous amount of insight into that and certainly um, would love to hear about you and kind of just, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and, you know, kind of maybe the journey and how you got into 3D printing. Yeah, yeah. Rather interesting because my background is in um, mining and oil and gas engineering and project development. And uh, I I came to 3D printing uh, or additive manufacturing um, via looking into uh, the business uh, that I was in and what impacts uh, were likely to disrupt that business. And uh, one of them that came up was additive manufacturing. And, uh, you know, the, the long-term outlook is that, uh, you know, engineers design pretty pictures and then they get built at the moment. And uh, the transition in the long term is that uh, projects will be virtually built and virtually manufactured on electronic paper before anything goes into reality. And of course, that's changing in many ways now with uh, you know, virtual plants being built and, and run before they are actually started up and people start to learn about how to run them, etc. This is just another step down that path. And uh, we came to the stunning conclusion that our business knew absolutely nothing about additive manufacturing. And it was probably about time that we, we learned about it. And uh, so the decision was made to throw our foot in and uh, get wet. And, uh, and so we started up Additive Now. And mm-hmm. uh, so uh, it's designed to learn how to be involved in the additive manufacturing business for mining and oil and gas and basically resources businesses. Um, and uh, that's how we got involved. Um, that that was about four years ago we started and we've learned a heck of a lot along the last four years. Um, we've had the business running in earnest for about two years now. Um, Additive manufacturing or 3D printing has been around for a lot, lot longer than that. Uh, first plastic printers were created back in the 90s. Okay. Uh, so, you know, 30 years ago. Um, one quick question, John. Sorry to, sorry to interrupt, but I want to ask one yeah. question and a clarification. So, because um, a lot of a lot of people listening are, are, are going to be familiar with 3D printing, but you also, you make an emphasis on or differentiation between 3D printing and additive manufacturing. I was wondering if you could just sort of give us a little bit of a primer on the differences between the two or how you see them differently. They're, they are effectively the same thing, but it's trying to put a more uh, over 
overall um, uh, image on on the whole suite of technologies. Um, you know, people see plastic printers and think, ah, that's where it started, and you know, there's only that and metal printing. Um, but there's 10 or 15 different technologies and each of them have their own niche in, in the additive manufacturing landscape. And although all of them are, are additive in the way that they create things rather than subtractive, um, they don't add them in the same way. Um, so there's, there's three or four, well, maybe more than that uh, now, plastic printing uh, technologies. There's at least six or eight metal printing technologies, and then there's ceramics and glass and other things. They even print food these days, but I think that's more a uh, gimmick at the moment than a than a, a, a re- reality. Well, you, you you get a bunch of the geeks like like myself on here, and I start thinking about you know Star Trek and the replicators, and then I start thinking about I just powered through Westworld, uh, which is a show on HBO here in the states, and you know they were three D printing body parts uh, for the cybernetic uh, kind of robots and whatnot. So yes. you know even though we joke about it, you know I think about space travel, right? I mean here's Elon Musk on Saturday Night Live, and you know he's already planning all these trips to Mars. I mean that's sort of yes. a foregone conclusion. Boy, would it be a boon if you could 3D print, you know, food, organics, and and things along the way that you needed? So it's it's probably not that crazy in some circles to really think about those things. Yeah, yeah. I was in Singapore before all of the lockdown started, and at one of the universities, they were doing uh, work for the the Mars missions of the future, and they were printing dirt. Um, <laughs> Wow. You know, not something you think about doing, but, uh, you know, they print concrete these days and uh, that's starting to become quite economic, um, you know, for making houses and so on. So, uh, and that those printers look nothing like the normal printers we think of. You know, they're, they're six metres high, but 10 metres long, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're big industrial scale machines. Absolutely, basically the same thing as a metal printer or a plastic printer. Well, that kind of leads me back. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hold that one for a second because that gets into the details of just you know the materials, the printers, and kind of the current state of affairs. But let me go back and and and, and just double click on uh, additive now and how you got involved. You know, I know they're involved. You know, there's kind of a part relationship with Whirly and Additive Now. And there's another company that actually does the printing, like. Just, just help us understand a little bit of your role, what Additive Now is doing right now as a company since there's additive manufacturing. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Additive Now is a, a service um, company to the additive manufacturing industry and to the resources industry. So we, we aim to be at the intersection between those two. Um and our, our aim is to facilitate the, the transition of um, traditional supply chains within the um, complex technology resource industries. Um, the, that, that has four different areas. So we look at advisory work, we look at uh, design work, we look at printing to qualify a part because you need to be able to repeatably print something and it comes out with the same high quality outcome every time and that mm-hmm. takes it's 
still a bit of black art in it, although there's a lot of science now. Um, and lastly, we do agile manufacturing. We're, we're not aiming to be a serial manufacturer, so we're not aiming to compete with the large um, multinationals who produce thousands or hundreds of thousands of parts. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a there's a niche uh, in the the business for helping those resource operators to transition from knowing nothing about additive manufacturing to be able to use the parts in the field and build trust and for short-run manufacturing where additive is already um, competitive on price with traditional manufacturing. Mm -hmm. um, the, the two partners in additive now are uh, Worley and Aurora Labs. Worley's a large multinational engineering company and uh, Aurora Labs is a small company out of Western Australia that uh, makes printers. Um, the reason for the joining was Orly started with zero additive manufacturing knowledge. There was a local right. company we could work with that would make, take us a large step forward. Um, we're, we're printer and technology agnostic. Um, mm -hmm. the, we have to be that way because each of the problems or projects that we look at, you have to assess what's the right technology because each of the technologies has a certain niche where it's more competitive, more applicable than any of the others. Um, so we use a number of different printing bureaus or print manufacturers around the world, um, well, both here in Australia and elsewhere, um, to supply the parts that we deliver. Mm -hmm. um, and we do a full service so we, we can advise you on how to go about transitioning to additive manufacturing. We can redesign your parts to get the most out of them when they're being additively manufactured. Um, and then we can produce the parts and get them certified. Many of the industries that we work in require certification to codes um, so that the insurers and the operators are comfortable that the part is produced to the right quality and will operate successfully in the field. So we do that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and we deliver them to the client. Um, and of course, one of the reasons why we, we're talking together is that uh, there's a need for a electronic or digital um, catalogue for additively manufactured parts. And there's obviously a lot of crossover between what Additive Now does and what Request does from that point of view. Mm -hmm. A lot, lot of chances for us to, to look at working together and, and optimising that platform to assist the clients to use uh, AM in the future, AM well, in additive manufacturing. Yeah, yeah, and I think, I think you're spot on in that. Uh, it, also looking forward, I mean, this is where we kind of get into little, uh, you know, the future of supply chain and how, you know, additive manufacturing becomes a part of that. So let me, let me, let me kind of focus in a little bit on, you know, some of the key kind of ideas and concepts around 3D printing as a component of additive manufacturing. One of which is, you know, I think it's, I think it's helpful for people to understand that, you know, people look at the plethora of products that we run into in our daily lives. You know, for me sitting at my table here, I can look at this plastic bowl. I've got my phone, my computer, my pen, glasses on my head. I mean, there's all this stuff, right? And it almost seems unlimited in scope and breadth, mm. but actually the amount of materials 
required to make all this stuff I'm staring at in my house isn't as much as people think. Yes. Can you can you kind of expand on that a little bit? What's the baseline of things that need to be moved into uh, 3D printing? What is yep. already there and what isn't, right? Yep. Yep. So uh, if you looked at polymers, um, a lot of the major polymers are already being 3D printed. Okay. Um, if you can um, light set it, you know, with with um, either ultraviolet bright or infrared light, or, or it's a thermoplastic, then you can print it. Okay. Um, some of the plastics that are around don't meet any of those, so they can't be additively manufactured. But the properties of those um, plastics that can't be printed at the moment, um, there's been some new products developed over the last few years which actually uh, have very similar uh, properties, so they're starting to replace those plastics where they want to print them. Um, as far as metals go, um, essentially uh, most of the metal technologies, uh, printing technologies, are advanced welding technologies. Um, so anything you can weld, you can print, and some things that you struggle to weld are actually quite printable because um, metal printing is a really, really sophisticated version of welding. You've got much more control over the melt pool. You've got much more control over the power input and the speed at which the, the printhead is moving, uh, the size of the energy source that's being impacted onto the print pool, uh, sorry, the melt pool. Um, so, you know, things that would crack or warp or distort normally when you printed them, uh, when you welded them, you can print. Hmm. Um, there are still things you can't print, um, and most of those are things that have um, uh, cracking or distortion problems. Um, a classic one would be uh, white iron or cast iron, which you normally, both of those, you cast. Um, another one that is approaching printability now is tungsten carbide. Um, there are people that are printing it, um, but it's still very specialist. It's still at the bleeding edge of uh, technology advancement at the moment. Um, so let me let me let me double click into that for a second. Sorry, because because I think this is also important. So I don't maybe and, and I know I learned this in your last conversation, but when I think about a three D printer and even the materials you're running through, whether it's polymers, you know, the different types of metals that you're referencing, of which. It's only a couple dozen materials that probably are printed that ultimately That's account right. for ninety-five percent of the world's you know stuff, you know whatever that That's is right. in various forms. But you 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 hit on a couple things. One is because of the granularity of three D printing, right? You can do things that you can't norm that we haven't been able to do historically with manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So let me go into that a bit further, which is that granularity is because this stuff that's printed is in this powder material, for lack of a better term, mm. that goes through this printer jet in a way that comes out and is formed up into whatever it is you're trying to form. But maybe you can expand on that. I mean, I'm doing a very layman's, you know, crappy job of this, but, you know, I mean, when someone says, oh, plastic powder or, you know, metal powder, that doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Maybe you can kind of simplify for that, because that's yeah, the key, sure. key element to understand in 3D printing is that 
anything we look at at a cellular, it can be broken down to molecules. Therefore, it could become powder, which, you know, I mean, that's not a radical thing to say. So there's two basic ways of doing it. One way is that you have a head which has the product that you want to deposit and it's coming out of the head Mm -hmm. and you move that head around and uh, the printhead. And everybody in the world just about now has seen a plastic printer working Mm -hmm. on a a filament printer and that's the way it works. It has a, a wire of plastic coming in and the printhead is heated and that puts the, the liquid product down, which instantly freezes to a, to a solid as soon as it sees the, uh, the cooler temperature. And that's how you make a lot of plastic stuff. There's metal um, analogies to that, where you put a metal powder through a uh, printhead and it's got a laser around it, which forms a plasma at thousands of degrees C. And then you point that at where you want to deposit the metal. And as soon as it hits the existing uh, substrate of metal, then it freezes. Okay. And so that's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it is that you lay down powder in thin layers. So imagine you've got a spreader, uh, which is laying down a layer of powder, be it plastic or metal, say uh, between 50 and 300 microns thick, depending on how thick you want it to be. Mm -hmm. And then you apply to that layer some sort of technology to stick that powder together. Um, When it's plastic uh, powders, then that can be either a glue binder or it can be um, a laser which Mm -hmm. which melts the, the plastic powder together. When the same sort of thing for metal, you can um, glue it together with a binder or you can use a laser to actually melt the powder on that surface and form the shape that you want in that layer. And then you add layer on top of layer on top of layer until you get the whole product. Mm -hmm. Um, Where you're using a, a glue or a binder, you finish up with a green product that comes out, which is still quite fragile. It's the right shape but then you have to put it through a secondary process that turns it into a solid product. Mm. Um, For plastic, that's normally some sort of light curing or something like that. Uh, For a um, metal, it's normally about putting it into a furnace Mm -hmm. and then solidifying you actually um, partially melt the product so that it becomes more dense and all the individual powder particles melt onto each other. Mm-hmm. And there's different levels of sintering, that's called, which, which can create a more and more dense particle. Um, there's pluses and minuses of those ways of doing things, and that's what differentiates the different technologies and where you'd use one technology over another. There's also other technologies where you physically hurl the powder particles as fast as you can at the surface where you want them to stick, and they basically hit the surface and embed into the surface and become like the existing metal that's there. Oh, wow. That's called kinetic printing because right. uh, you're hurling it at a huge rate of knots at the... the uh, well, the, yeah, um, yeah, the kinetic printing sounds like, I mean, that's kind of in my head, as we've been talking here, I just have these images of sci-fi, whether it shows, movies, or otherwise, where they're just kind of holding something and it it literally sprays something that 
print yeah. something out, you know, but in the air, it's not going against a mold or a surface or anything. It just, but that's kind of what the stepping stone you're describing. Yeah, well, this, these normally need a substrate because right. you've got to impact them onto something to make the metals join together. They don't just sure. coalesce into midair. Yeah, right. They haven't, they haven't invented that yet, sorry. Well, give it some time. We like to get creative <laughs> on the show. We like, we like to think about what's next, you know, not, not, not yeah, necessarily yeah, what's here, right. yeah. So, so let me let me let me kind of again go into that. So, so we've got the uh, the basic principles. You've got you know, let's call it a couple dozen source materials. You know that we're all talking about printing, right? From metals to polymers, and polymers are just chemical, you know, chemical compositions and bonds, whatever. Yeah. We're even in the area of organics, but I'm going to leave that aside for now because I think that's probably a little that's a step too far for most people right now. Uh, <laughs> start thinking yeah. of that. Um, but now the printers themselves, right? So you've got the materials, you've got the, uh, you know, the characteristics of the powders. How are the printers? I mean, the printers are not that big today, or they're not as big as people might think. Um, I mean, what are the limitations there with the printers? But the interesting thing is, physically, they are big, but the actual parts that they can print are quite small. So, you know, a large metal printer powder bed fusion printer, which is laying down powder beds and then fusing them with a laser. I mean, it could be uh, four or six metres long by three metres high by two or three metres wide, but it'll probably actually only have a production um, volume where it's actually doing the hard work, which, uh, well, the biggest one in the world that's sort of out there and is a production machine now is 600 millimetres cubed, so 600, 600, 600, not that big. Um, there are technologies that you can produce much larger parts than that, but they tend to produce um, near net shapes rather than um, finished shapes. Powder bed fusion will produce a shape that is very, very close to the, the finished product and it will require some post-processing and if you've got a uh, interference fit for a bearing or something like that, that will need to be machined. But the near net shape technologies like um, uh, binder jet printing or, or wire arc additive manufacturing or, or WAM as it's called, they produce a shape that could be plus or minus a few millimetres from the, the finished shape and will require a lot more machining. Still a lot less machining than a, a reductively produced part where you start off with a billet of metal and you take away all the metal by machining and finish up with a finished part. Mm -hmm. So the waste will be a lot smaller, but, but it's different levels of waste. So where are you seeing today? Let me shift gears into sort of where, where do we see 3D printing or additive manufacturing you know, in use today? Right, and it spans multiple industries. It's not just in energy, chemical, and resources. I mean, it's kind of all over, but it's not as it's not as pervasive as people might think either. No, no, no. I, I think there's very few industries that additive manufacturing hasn't moved into, um, but in a lot of industries, it's quite peripheral and quite a small proportion of the supply chain. But if you go to medical and dental, then it's quite a significant portion of the supply chain. If you looked at lightweight products in the aerospace industry, um, then it's quite pervasive. It's used quite extensively. Um, and in motor vehicles, you're now starting to see it moving in um, and being used more often. 
Mm. It's very extensively used in the motor vehicle industry for prototyping um, because they can reduce the prototype um, uh, innovation cycle uh, uh, from three to six months down to a week or two. Uh, I mean, the best example of that is F1, where they now can come up with an idea and put it in the car in less than seven days. Oh and uh, that's that's amazing. I mean, who would have thought of an innovation cycle of seven days, you know, right. 10 years ago? Um, just unheard of. Um, so well, let me ask. Let me ask you a question on that one. So, 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 if they're, I mean, Formula One's kind of one of those, one of those sports, kind of like uh, uh, what I don't want to say, uh, the World Cup, uh, uh, World's Cup uh, sailing event, right? Where you're kind of, mm. you're at the apex of this sport that, quite frankly, most people don't really realize is basically a giant science experiment. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It just so happens one has wheels and another one has, you know, a bunch of airfoil type things going on, right? Mm. Um, but it's all scientists trying to figure out how to maximize, you know, all the forces that are at play. So where I was going with it is with 3D printing being used in Formula One, again, no surprise there. It's almost like unlimited budgets. Um, what have they? What are things of significance that they may have produced in there that, that really have changed? Because a seven-day innovation cycle is, is insane. Mm. I mean, just I mean, I have an idea. I'm going to print it. I'm going to put it in the car. I'm going to test it for 48 hours. And boom, I can make my adjustments, you know, within that's nine right. days. I mean, that's just crazy. Yeah, I, I guess the the most pervasive use in F1 is uh, the uh, aerofoils and the air shape of the car. You know, the F1 is at the very leading edge of aerodynamics and yep. uh, little tiny changes can make quite large differences. Yep. And these guys are looking for parts of a percentage or a percent of difference in, in their drag or the ratio between the hold down that they get and the total drag of the car. You know, they want hold down effect without um, using power. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they use that very regularly. But parts in the engines or running parts on the wheels or whatever, then, you know, a lot of, lot of their parts are made out of uh, lightweight material, titanium or high-strength aluminium and... Uh, those are very printable products. It's very known technology. Um, they're looking for part aggregation. So, you know, the less parts in an F1 car, the better, because the mechanic's got less work to do. He can do the work faster. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they change out an engine in a few hours in an F1 car. Right. Um, and, all you know, the light weighting, the lighter the F1 car is, the the higher the power to weight ratio is because mm -hmm. they're all constrained on the size of engine, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, so it's all about power to weight ratio and, and additive manufacturing has the ability to take metal away and therefore get lighter without changing the, the strength of a part um, mm -hmm. because you take the metal away from where it's not required and only leave it where it's actually providing the strength that's required to deliver the duty. Mm -hmm. Now, what about, what about, what about, um, I'm going to, I mean, it's almost like I, I can't avoid it here, but, you know, let me go, let me go to space now. So, you know, whether it's the space stations or uh, the trips now uh, going to, you know, Mars, or a lot of people probably miss this, but, you know, I think it was four or five months ago, we landed on a, is it either an asteroid or a con I think it was an asteroid, you know, asteroid. it was an asteroid, right? They, they actually got, I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to sit in um, with the guy who ran that thing on a conference call, um, just listening to what they, 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 they did so well that they were able to get material off that asteroid. But again, just, 
they were amazed at how efficient they were able to go do that, number one. So when they came off, they had like all this extra time and fuel. They're like, well, let's go do it again. So they're going to go land again on something. I don't know if they've done it, uh, but they were going to go land and get something else. But they were also, all these new minerals were coming out, right? Mm. All this stuff, you know, God only knows printed. So questions are, where's 3D printing if we look up in space? You know, I imagine you're seeing some 3D printing going on in the space stations. There has to be. I can't imagine there isn't. And then and there also has to be a component to some of the materials uh, evaluations of Mars with the current landers and everything going on there to say, is this material printable? And can we then use it as a part of our initial foray to Mars? Because a printing kit will be required to you know, help us kind of get established there. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, I, I believe they're looking very seriously at uh, using printing in space. Um, uh, most of the printing uh, of metals is done under a vacuum because they don't want uh, oxygen around. Um, so, you know, doing it up in space is actually not a bad thing because it's wow. a vacuum. Right. Not, not much oxygen up there if you put yeah, it right. right, right, The uh, The trick then would be uh, most of the machines use gravity as an advantage rather than trying to get rid of it. And I'm not oh. sure what people have done about trying to work out how you would uh, print in a zero-gravity environment. Interesting. Now, Mars, Mars has probably got enough gravity that it's not such a big issue. But if you're right. on a space station, then you're basically right. almost zero gravity. Um, you know, the uh, you re- you lay down the layers of of powder, for instance, in a powder bed, and you require gravity to hold that powder in place. Um, mm-hmm. The same when you're running a plastic printer around. You know, you do have just about contact between the printhead and the the plastic part that you're printing, but there is a small gap there, and mm-hmm. gravity makes the um, the drop of plastic go down onto the totally. part. Um, I'm not sure anybody's addressed that problem. I've never asked anybody. That's an, that. that's an interesting, but it's an interesting question. I mean, someone someone's got. To, I mean, when you just said gravity, immediately I'm like, oh yeah, of course, right? Because you you know, if I've got a powder and all that stuff's kind of spread all over the place, like how do I contain that? To get it through a printer, uh, and this is where, where unless you've unless you have experience here, G, which I haven't, um, yeah. you know, you wouldn't think of those things. You you almost don't even think about it. it's like oxygen sometimes here. You don't think about it not, when it's not. gone, though. The whole world changes when gravity is gone. Everything changes quite a bit. Um, all bad. right, I'm going to come back from space. Come back to terra firma for a second. <laughs> so so hard for me not to get out there though. Um, now now. 3D printing, so we've got it in energy chemicals resource, pharmaceutical, medical devices, I mean, just some places to normally think of. Um, where are you seeing the next big developments in additive manufacturing? Like, what's on the horizon? So we're sort of still at the early adopter phase, I would say. It feels like even in some more robust industries or mature industries like pharmaceuticals or medical devices or even energy and chemicals, I'm not sure, but mm. it still feels early days. What, what's coming? What's the big stuff next? Well, certainly energy and chemicals and mining and um, its early adopter phase. Uh, I think you would say medical, it's moved into a standard production technique. Um, aerospace, it's sort of on the borderline of being accepted as the one of the really uh, advantageous production techniques, but it's maybe not quite run-of-the-mill. Mm-hmm. Um Certainly in the military, 
they are accepting that additive manufacturing is uh, a really serious manufacturing um, capability for the future. And, and they're interested in field manufacture and things like that. Um, if you looked at the, the oil and gas industry um, uh, or the, the chemicals industry, then to date uh, it's been that there's a long-term focus in those industries on uh, how can we reduce the capital that is uh, embedded in our spares inventories. Um, you know, a company like Saudi Aramco, for instance, has got um, five or $10 billion worth of spares sitting on their shelf. Um, and you turn those into a virtual part and print them on demand rather than having them sitting there waiting to be used. All of that money goes straight back to the bottom line um, and it reduces the working capital of the business. And if you've got too much working capital, you return that to your investors and they put it back in their pocket. And investors really like putting money back in their pocket. Right. Right. Um, so that's that's a strong focus of a lot of operations around the world is what what part of our inventory do we think in the longer term is printable and how do we um, start assessing that, start to trial printing the parts that we would like to look at, um, being able to uh, virtualise and then thinking past that, how do we manage that so that uh, the intellectual property associated with those parts is preserved? And how do we ensure the quality of those parts so that they can be used in high-risk industries without any additional risk being added to the operation? Um, so that's that's been a lot of the thinking today. But the use cases... Um, are uh, two, two different use cases mainly. The first one is, okay, we'll start trialling a few of these simple things to make sure that we understand the process we've got to go through in going from a physical part to a virtual part. But then the asset management and the, the engineers get hold of this um, idea and they start coming up with use cases which are about adding value to their business at the moment. So you're looking at high value added solutions that um, are uh, taking existing um, problems that have been intransigent, they haven't been able to solve because they don't have a technology that will allow them to solve the particular problem they have and, and additive manufacturing opens up a new set of um, manufacturing capabilities and some new materials. And um, so it allows them to solve problems. Um, you know, some of the, the classic ones um, would be uh, oh, where you've got um, a particular wear or erosion problem and you, you can't design the part to get rid of that erosion problem because it's too complex and too expensive. Mm -hmm. But when you can print the shape that you want that will solve that problem, um, then you actually have an ability to solve the problem that you could never solve before. Or uh, where you've got complexity in a part, like in a, a hydraulic header, mm -hmm. 
And a hydraulic header has a lot of internal complexity, lots of small channels, etc. And uh, the only way they make those at the moment is that they machine them from solid metal and they make them in small piece, small parts and then they aggregate the parts together using seals between each of the parts. And, of course, the, the least um, reliable part of that whole assembly is the seals between the parts. Right. Um, when you additively manufacture it, you can create all of that internal complexity with zero seals. You can make it in one part hmm. and you just have a couple of seals for valves on the outside. And in critical hydraulic duties, you can improve the reliability of that part very significantly. Um, so, uh, you know, they're looking at that for offshore subsea hydraulic headers, for instance. Sure. And there's been a couple of those produced already and are in the field being trialled. And they're made out of, you know, a simple material like 316 stainless steel. So it's very printable. It's uh, There's... You're not inventing anything new. You're just um, refining or you're using the advantages of additive manufacturing, the manufacturing advantages to create a new product that will provide a higher value-added solution. Which makes sense. And so so now kind of looking forward a little bit, um, taking that the next step, we also had talked about you, you had some incredible kind of ideas visionary, whatever, where what we know is supply chain really changes. You know, if we go out 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, you know, one of the implications of additive manufacturing is a lot of the principles around supply chain change yes. dramatically, actually, right? In, yes. in, in, in a very good way, a positive way. We get rid of a lot of waste. Mm. Um, we, we have a lot of ability for customization. So I don't want to go too much further, but let me let you kind of expand on that because it really is some interesting thoughts around where this is going and, and how supply chain just as, as, a, as an entire industry is going to change forever. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's the intersection of the, the digital technology and the predictive maintenance um, and the ability to then virtualize a part. Um, so the need to hold parts on a shelf will become um, much less uh, of a risk to the business holding less parts. Um, and conversely, um, you know, a virtual part uh, costs you only the design costs. Or if you haven't designed it and OEM has designed it, you would just buy that right to print that part when you needed it. So you would actually have zero embedded cost in your business until you needed the part. Yep. Um, and the, the second thing is that uh, if you look at a distributed supply chain that's using additive manufacturing to uh, enhance its, its capabilities, then um, you try and um, put the manufacturing of the part um, as close as possible to its final use um, because that will shorten the delivery time frame, which means you take risk out of the virtualization. Um, but it also takes carbon out of the, the footprint of that part. And, uh, you know, transporting, maybe in the long term, if we're transporting everything in electric vehicles right. that are renewable energy, that's right. less of an issue. But at the moment, 
we we can only use carbon to transport stuff around the world. Mm. And, uh, you know, you think about a large sophisticated valve that's produced for the oil and gas industry at the moment, uh, it could go around the world three times before it actually finishes up with the client because you produce one bit of it in this country, another piece of it in this country, another piece of it in that country over there, and there's a fourth country where they actually put the bits together Right. And that's nowhere near where the end user is, so it then gets transported to the end user, gets put on a shelf, or maybe goes into a shutdown, uh, a turnaround, and uh, gets used. Um, you know, the future is being able to localise a lot of that production mm-hmm. and uh, and simplify supply chains. Um, there's going to have to be... Uh, and Sorry, and the reason why you can do that is that um, a lot of the the specialist knowledge that's required for the production will in future be embedded in the design. Um, And uh, therefore, once you have access to the design and the right powders and the right machinery, you should be able to produce that part. And then there'll be a a set of uh, machining and post-processing instructions that go with the part. So it'll come out maybe going into a heat treating furnace, then into a CNC machine and then have a polishing process or something, but that'll all be embedded in the production process that's embedded within the part, um, the knowledge that goes with the part. Um, And that'll all be um, in an encrypted uh, bundle and... uh, at the moment, those encrypted bundles have to be decrypted before they're put into the machine. But I think in the longer term, there'll be a, a, a technology revolution where the machines will have the decryption built in. So you only decrypt the piece of the knowledge that's in the, the part as you need it to produce. And so the, the IP associated with that bundle of knowledge is going to be much safer. Yep, um, yep. Well, with that, so, so that's that's kind of that look forward. So on all of a sudden, it's you know it's literally on-demand manufacturing I, I, in every sense of the word. Every single thing can be like you know in the future, long enough timeline, printed. You know, provided the lead times are a day or two or three or whatever it is, but you know, not not weeks or months or whatever. And yep. it's just a function of do I have the proper material in the proper format to print it right. So this is going to, now I'm going to bring it full circle to circularity, which is, you know, that alone on-demand manufacturing probably takes out, oh God, I'm just going to conservatively estimate 50% of the stuff that we pull out of the ground is wasted through, you know, just this archaic kind of manufacturing processes that you described where it goes through all these different hands and gets shipped all over the place and Mm -hmm. the amount of wastage and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, Already, you're reducing our 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 you know 100 gigatons of stuff we pull out of the ground down to 50 just by moving in this direction. But also, talk a little bit about the circularity. We're gonna I'm gonna be conscious of time here as we're kind of winding down. But you know, I, it, it's I think conceptually people get it. I got a powder of whatever metal, copper. I put it through a printer. And, well, okay, so now I've printed it into uh, something. You know, a copper tube or pro, you know, how easy is it then to break that down back into the requisite powder material to then print it again? Yeah, well, I think there's 
several things you've uncovered there. Okay. Um, the, first, the first thing is the inherent wastage of reductive manufacturing versus additive manufacturing. Right. You know, you, you put powder into a bed and you fuse bits of the powder to make the part. All the rest of the powder that went into that bed is reusable and they actually drain it out of the bed, put it through a filter to get rid of any bits that may have got some spatter from the, the lasing process and it's reused straight away. Um, and, uh, you know, there's some supports um, that you might need on a metal part to hold it in place so that it doesn't move around as it uh, cools down or as the laser goes over the top of it for the next layer. Those supports normally just break off. They can go back and be recycled and turned back into powder again. Um, the, the, the products, I mean, copper uh, is a great example. Um, a lot of the copper that's been mined over the centuries is still in circulation. Copper has a very high um, recycling rate at the moment. So does aluminium didn't used to, but now it has a very, very high recycle rate. Yep. The recycle rate for steels is improving all the time. Um, things like uh, lithium-ion batteries, I think we could do a lot better at. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, but the recycling of, of metals especially is improving all the time. And I think the big advantage between when you compare traditional manufacturing to additive manufacturing where you're using powder is that powder is a single product and then you make it into a huge array of parts. If you're using metal, then normally you have to have the metal in a, in a uh, what's the right term? It has to be produced in a way that is uh, aligned with the production process. Yeah. So if you're producing bolts, for instance, you right. want to have bar. If, if you are producing a valve, you want to have uh, big blocks of metal. Um, you know, if you're producing um, shafts, then you want billet stock, which is bigger than bars but smaller than blocks. Right. So there's this array of products that are produced in metal that then go through further manufacturing processes, producing waste, and, and before you get to the final product. With powder, you take out all of that wastage, all of that storage. Um, you go from the, the raw material coming out of the ground, it goes through some processing, and then you make it into powder, and then the powder goes to wherever you want to make the part. And as you said before, there's probably 10 or 20 materials in metal um, that, that are commonly used. Um, you know, you could reel them off in the oil and gas industry, 316, duplex, super duplex, Inconel, Hastelloy, et cetera. Um, that's probably only another three or four that I've missed. And, of course, some, some standard steel. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, you could maybe have 10 containers of powder sitting in your workshop that would produce 80 or 90% of your parts out of those. Right. Right. You don't have to hold billet stock, you don't have to hold bar, you don't have to hold big blocks of metal to make valves, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you don't have to have a casting furnace there. Um, right, right. Casting furnace is a, a big beast and uh, requires very specialist operators, et cetera. 
which is why we've only got in the United States, I mean, I think, cat. well, actually smelting, which is a whole other kind of form. It's the reverse engineering of casting, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. uh, to some mm -hmm. extent. Um, there's only a couple of them in the United States. I didn't even realize that, right? How few of them there actually are in the world uh, because of all the reasons that you're bringing out. I mean, it's about mm -hmm. heat, energy, and, you know, it's it, very specialized kind of technical operations. Um, mm -hmm. Um, that's why there's not that many. Okay. So just, just, you know, final, final thoughts. I mean, there's a lot going on here. I mean, this has sort of been a primer on 3d printing additive now. Um, you know, clearly it's here, clearly it's already having an impact. It's one of these things that's sort of, you know, people keep hearing about, but they don't know that it's actually out there as much as it is. And, and, and it is actually having an impact already. And, and, and as you mm -hmm. already said, you know, in the medical industry alone, um, you know, some of these things that people, you know, are, are getting, you know, put in, you know, might, might've been 3d printed in some places. Right. Um, I mean, that's how advanced it is. Uh, yep. Um, yep. But, you know, just, just what's, what's up over the next, you know, coming out of this, what's up for you and additive now and, you know, kind of what's coming up in the next you know, six to 12 months. But I think the most interesting thing we're starting to see in the large resource industries is that the client's, have had their aha moment that they see that this is a long-term significant influence on the working capital of their business. And it's also uh, a carbon and low waste um, technology, carbon uh, redu reducing and low waste technology. And that's very important as a, you know, uh, keeping their shareholders on side and the community on side these days. Um, so they're, they're now moving towards setting up um, additive manufacturing as a day-to-day -day part of their business, not as a specialist side part of their business. And, uh, you know, companies like Equinor and Shell are starting to put significant pressure on their OEMs to engage in additive manufacturing and start transitioning the parts that make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, into uh, uh, from away from traditional manufacturing towards additive manufacturing, and the interesting thing is that uh, you know traditionally manufacturers and OEMs have um, produced a product using a certain technology because it's cost advantageous to that OEM. They haven't thought about what is the total business case for the client. And is the way that they're manufacturing it actually to the advantage of the, the client as opposed to the advantage of the, the manufacturer. And a mm -hmm. classic case is those hydraulic headers. The cheapest way for them to produce them at the moment is reductively right. with lots of seals. Doesn't improve the reliability for the client. And the reliability for the client is probably far more important than the the cost of the header because the header is controlling this large piece of machinery if the large piece of machinery goes down the whole the whole show stops yep and you know it could be half a million bucks a day and all for a header that maybe cost a few thousand bucks yep um and this is where some of those large resource companies are starting to change the way that they are looking at this issue they're saying, what is the business case of the problem with that part? Mm -hmm. And are there smarter ways to produce that part? If it costs more, is it still business cost advantageous to have that more expensive part put into production? And 
and it's starting to challenge the paradigm of always buying the cheapest part from China. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, what's the risk reduction in our supply chain by going to having a portion of our requirements for a part made locally at a more expensive cost, but it takes the risk out of the supply chain? Sure. Not all of our stuff, just some of it. And, and I think the recent pandemic and the supply chain issues, which are still going on, you know, I don't think anybody has caught up yet, um, have really highlighted the, the inherent risk of that supply chain optimization yep. that went on um, yep. prior, to, prior to the pandemic and people are starting to reassess that risk profile and, and changing their procurement practices to uh, remove a portion of that risk. Totally. They're probably not going to be willing to remove all of it because the, the cost-benefit analysis isn't going to work, but there's going to be a, a evening up in the balance between risk in the supply chain and cost of product. Yep, yep, totally agree. Well, John, listen, I want to thank you. Uh, we've come up on, on the hour, and as, as always, but even in particular here, I think we can keep going for another four hours because it is a fascinating topic and 3D printing and additive manufacturing. And I do like, I think the term you're right, additive manufacturing needs a little bit better marketing PR, but it's a better term. It's more encompassing. Um, mm. Changes the way people think about traditional manufacturing, right? That's the that's the idea, yeah. Right, um, and it's it, it it will take hold, but uh, you know, fascinating to think about where it is today, uh, you know, where it's going. But in the context, it, it's already having an impact on the supply chain. I mean, it is forever will be a part of the supply chain, um, mm. and it's just how fast we get it in here, and it's one of the biggest steps we can move towards reducing all of that waste. Right. And, and and making things that we just need at the, any given point in time. Right. Which is the mm -hmm. ultimate goal of any supply chain. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So awesome. Great discussion. Thank you so much for today. And uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, have, have a wonderful day. This is Richard Donaldson. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments about the episode or topics in supply chain you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at supplychainnext at requis.com. And while you're at it, why not check out the Request platform at supplychain.request.com. Request allows you to manage the full asset lifecycle in the cloud, collaborating with your entire value network to buy, manage, and sell your assets. Find out more at www.request.com.